One Week Season. WS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, Hilo here, bringing you the Best Ball Theory podcast series that we are running here at One Week Season. This is, can't even believe it, this is the ninth installment of this series that we are running. And what we do here is we break down the nitty gritty theory behind the beautiful game of Best Ball. We are going to cut straight to the chase this week. I am going to bring in a guy who you probably have heard of before. I like to refer to him as the Sultan of Swat, the Titan of Terror, the Colossus of Clout, the King of Crash, the Great Bambino, Mr. Jordan Toline, more affectionately known to us as JM to win. JM, how are we doing tonight, man? I wonder how many of our younger listeners don't get any of those references. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. I know that's a movie. Is that a movie that people still watch? Is that like, has that turned into a classic? Does anyone watch The Sandlot anymore? Oh, God, I hope so. That's a great movie. (laughs) You know what? Actually, so uh, William just recently started getting into baseball. And uh, so, yeah, like every night right now, he asks to put on a baseball game, which he pays attention to for like five minutes. But uh, that'll be a fun movie to show him. I'll have to show him that movie sometime soon. soon. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Uh, Field of Dreams, League of Their Own, all those good ones, man. It's like a dying breed of, of old school baseball movies. I put in so much baseball work over the years that I like, I, I lost, I lost interest. I don't even watch baseball anymore. I'll need to like cycle back around <laughs> to it. I need to renew my passion for it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Go watch Sandlot after we're, after we're done. Exactly. That'll get me going. I'm, Abby would be stoked. I'm sure. I'm sure that she'd be excited. She loves that movie. So yeah, we did. What about Bob the other night? We'll do Sandlot next. Get some uh, old school movies going. That's awesome, man. I appreciate the fact that you uh, caught that reference too. <laughs> 100%, 100%. Yes. Let's go. There's a reason that I like, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, man, I want to kick this off. This is something that I would probably save towards the end of the podcast on a, I don't want to say a standard guest, but somebody that is probably that our listeners are not just dying to hear from. With you, I know everybody has been on the edge of their seats waiting to hear from JM uh, with respect to best ball. So I want to start with some JM-isms, as we affectionately call them, uh, around OWS. And that are that, those are basically your unique perspectives for the landscape of best ball this year. I'm just going to leave it open uh, and let you talk for a little bit because I'm more, I think I'm excited to hear that as well. Yeah. So first off, um, we're kind of, we kind of put together this best ball subscription on the fly and I think it came together extraordinarily well, but one of the things that we, you know, we just got the BB plus podcast feed up this week, which is the subscriber only podcast, which by the way, if you're listening to this and you're not a subscriber to BB plus Hilo, tell the people how much it costs. Oh man, one doll hair, one US dollar. You are missing out if you are not uh, subscribing to that package. So that's not a joke. So it's one dollar uh, for everything that we're doing best ball that's like gated content this year. And uh, I mean, as always, we kind of think that we're building the best content in the industry, but um, we have sharp people, right? We're putting together really good stuff. And so we this last week, I started putting together the BB Plus podcast feed, which is just subscriber only pods and 
I've put up three so far, one on buying fear. And I talked about some of the players who have been falling. And, and one of the things that's so important is understanding the context behind why a player is falling. I remember like early in my DFS years, uh, in fact, it was right before I got into DFS that I came across Roto World. And it was like, man, this thing's game changing for me as a season long fantasy player. And then I started obviously using that for DFS. And I would still have those like overreactions to the Roto World blurb. And then as Roto World became less of an edge, right, it became something that had reached a saturation point. And kind of anybody who plays DFS pays attention to Roto World or something similar. Well, then you start realizing everybody has these natural overreactions to short-term news. And so one of the things that I always want to do is have that deeper context, not what does this blurb say, but what did the actual report that this blurb was taken from say? What was the deeper context there? What is the context around this day's training camp report from this reporter and what they've said the previous three or four days, the previous and so uh, we focused on buying fear and, and the actual context behind some of these guys who've been falling. And then we focused on the tight end position, which I think you and I will probably end up touching on a little bit, including when we talk about early, unique early round pairings, uh, the tight end position and how important it is and why it's so important, how to think about it strategically. And then just today, we put up uh, a pretty lengthy one. It was like an hour and 20 minutes, but listen to it on 2x speed. And I go through a draft that was like a really unique strategy build compared to like a typical draft that you would see. And it allowed me to kind of explore a lot of different elements. So I say all that to say, one, go listen to those. Uh, we haven't had a good way to like position it. So it's at the top of the best ball scroll right now. Since they weren't ready when it launched, you might've missed it. If you're listening to this, check that out. I say that secondly, to say the strategy side of things, right? That that draft that I walk through, I walk through basically the same strategy angles that we always talk about for DFS, but just applying it to best ball. So again, that podcast was an hour and 20 minutes, so we won't go too deep into it here, but it was so, it's so interesting to me that people think that they're doing something unique when they're doing something new that everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. It's new to you this year, but it's also new to everyone else. So because it's new to you, it feels unique. It feels different. It feels like you're on the edge of what's being done. But if everybody else is also on that same edge, it's not an edge. So last year, Hilo, you put together the uh, best ball game theory marketplace course. I put together the best ball draft pack. We talked about building for week 17. And mm -hmm. as far as I know, we were the only content providers who were hammering that angle. And in my draft pack, I was talking through what the matchups were in week 17, why it was so important, what the theory was behind it. And now that's what everyone's talking about this year. And so if that is what you're focused on as your strategy edge, it's no longer your strategy edge. And so one of the things that uh, is so interesting to me is to think about how things correlate from like a the, the bigger your view is, the more certain you are about what's going to happen. So when you are heading into a week in the regular season, a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I know this guy is going to have a big game. There's no way I can't play this guy. And then the farther back we go, we're in early, mid-August, right? The farther back we go, the more confident we are in these takes. It's like, oh yeah, well, uh, in week 17, this game's going to blow up. And so if I don't have pieces from this game, well, last year, nobody was saying Bengals versus Ravens in the playoff weeks was one of the games you had to have. Mm -hmm. Also so rare that we get a team blow up 
back-to-back weeks. So if you're just all in on this one offense for week 17 and like a couple other little pieces, well, that offense probably isn't getting you from week 15 to 16 and then week 16 to 17, if they're then having a blow up game in week 17, it's very rare. We saw the Bengals have back-to-back weeks last season. That's just not something we see very often. And then a lot of times, and, and we were all talking about this via text message the other day or a week or week and a half ago, but <laughs> what is not, time? <laughs> it's not, what is time, especially in July? And August. It's not infrequent that we see in DFS one team, like in a matchup, one team have a big game, the other team doesn't. Right. Whether it's because it's a blowout win or even because the it's, you know, maybe a 10 point win, but the team that loses maybe has a, a less concentrated offense and it's spread the ball out and their production is going to a bunch of different guys. Nobody has a multi touchdown game. Nobody has a monster game. And so like stacking so heavily isn't guaranteed to be what wins. And then why do we stack? Right. We stack because an we stack because uh, spiked weeks on an individual player come from touchdowns. That's almost always where we're going to get our huge game. I use this example in the podcast today, but if you have a guy who catches eight passes for 190 yards in underdog scoring, that's 23 points. And Damian Harris goes out and gets 99 yards and two rushing touchdowns. And he basically puts up the same score, right? Touchdowns is where it's at. And a team that will score a lot of touchdowns in a game is that much likelier to produce a multi-touchdown game from one player. But it's not necessarily going to be on the player you think it's going to be on. So everybody who is just kind of following the same path and pushing the same buttons. And so I'll kind of break down, I'll, I'll kind of condense this, but I'll break down real quickly the top of the roster that I looked at. And the first pick was Cooper Cup. And so immediately we know, okay, a couple things we know. If we have Cooper Cup, we don't have Jonathan Taylor. So how do we get leverage off of these Jonathan Taylor rosters that also have kind of similar selections coming up in similar construction? Next thing we know, if we take Cooper Cup, what are most people thinking? Okay, well, I've got to get Matthew Stafford. And okay, LA and LA are playing in week 17. So let me let me see. Well, I've got pick one, two, three, four, five. That's how I ended up with Cooper Cup. He's almost always going to be gone by pick five, which means my third round pick is 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. And Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, their ADP is right there in that range. Mm -hmm. And usually almost always one of those guys is going to be there for Cooper Cup rosters, third round picks. So we know that people are going to be taking kind of the, the Mark Andrews or the Nick Chubb or the Javante Williams or the Leonard Fournette or now Alvin Kamara or AJ Brown, whoever's sitting there at that pick 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. And then they're going to be targeting one of these LA pass catchers, LA Chargers pass catchers. And then their next pick is going to line up exactly with Justin Herbert's ADP. And they're going to be thinking about that. And then thinking, if I miss Justin Herbert, I'm going to get Matthew Stafford. So on this roster, what I did was I reached for Michael Pittman at pick 22 or whatever it was, because nobody's reaching for Michael Pittman at pick 22. Tyreek Hill or Mark Andrews or Alvin Kamara, all these guys are on the board who are way sexier than Michael Pittman. And he's kind of a consolation prize when you get past these guys. And then most people with Cooper Cup don't have Michael Pittman anyway, because when he's on the board, Mike Williams or Keenan Allen are on the board. That also frees up my next pick. I'm not taking Keenan Allen or Mike Williams. That frees up my next pick to say, let me reach for a non-natural pairing. So I reached for Cortland Sutton, who for most of July and early August was kind of being picked in the mid-30s, 35, 36, 37. So if you have pick 26, 27, 28, and one of these charges is there, 
you're not reaching all the way to Cortland Sutton. So now I have this super non-natural start to my roster and my fourth pick, Justin Herbert's there. Now, nobody is taking Justin Herbert because they just passed on Mike Williams and Keenan Allen. So I take Justin Herbert and I'm going to pair him with Josh Palmer or Gerald Everett later in the draft. So now these first four picks just give me such a different setup. In the end, when this roster was all said and done, I had an LA versus LA stack. I had a Denver and Kansas City stack. And yet it was a stack that nobody else would have with a roster nobody else would have. And so what ends up happening is Cooper Cup gets you to week 15 because he has another monster season. But if he has kind of a mediocre game in week 15, you're competing against, I, I said it like this earlier, you go in like with a, with a league where only one of 12 rosters has Cooper Cup and you have him. And Cooper Cup duplicates that season on some other first round picks disappoint because of injury or ineffectiveness or whatever surprises are in store for us. And so they're all falling behind you because you have Cooper Cup. But now you go to round to week 15 to round two, and you're competing against tons of Cooper Cup rosters. Mm -hmm. And all of them are constructed the same. And Cooper Cup just has kind of a mediocre game. And now you just have kind of these random picks in the, the 80s, the 90s, the 100s that are different from some other rosters. And you're hoping that those give you an edge. Whereas I'm sitting here with Cortland Sutton and Michael Pittman, and let's say both of them have a big game in week 15 and, and nobody else who was carried up with Cooper cup gets those games. Now all the Cooper cup rosters are knocked out before week 16. And I've got Cooper cup in week 16 because these other guys helped me get there. And there's just so many strategic advantages and different ways we can think about things on that roster. I ended up building a full Colts passing attack stack to say, look, if, if Jonathan Taylor disappoints, then I'm now getting all those points because that means the Colts are passing more. Or if Jonathan Taylor has a down week in one of these key weeks, I'm benefiting there. And so it's, it's basically saying not what has been the strategy in the past, but what is the strategy that people are going to be talking about next year? It's the same thing if we're talking about players, not who is a third round pick now, but who's being drafted in the sixth or seventh round that could be a third round pick next year. So we always want to be thinking ahead of the competition. And I think that that's one of the things that we're able to provide a big edge in just because our natural bent is is so geared towards strategy that we're always thinking about those things. And so I guess, I don't know if that counts as JM-isms, but that's like what I'm really seeing in the best ball landscape this year, which is that we're everybody thinks they're doing something different because it's new to them, but it's the same different that everybody else is doing, which means it's not different at all. And so we want to be thinking about what can we do here? One of the questions I ask is, what would somebody with this roster not do with this next pick? And I'm not always doing that thing that they wouldn't do, but I'm looking for those opportunities to press a few buttons that other people are not pressing that just change the trajectory of my roster and the story that it needs to end up telling. And I think that, that roster was a good example of it. And I think that that's probably, I mean, I'm guessing that's the same thing you're seeing as well, right? It's just like that the, the people aren't taking the next step in their strategy thinking. And I think obviously that's part of the edge we're able to provide, but also that's where we all want our minds to be is what's different this year. What can we do differently this year? Yeah. So I was over here taking notes uh, as <laughs> you were giving that extremely like in-depth monologue because I wanted to relay your viewpoints into stuff that we have already discussed on this podcast that you're going to see around the rest of OWS through the best ball plus package. Uh, but before I do that, I'm kind of, before I jump into what I pulled out and what I would want the listeners to pull out of that, the, the big hammer at the end of that 
of what you were talking about was being ahead of the game and thinking about like what would next year's echo chamber strategies look like? What would be like the hotness next year? And I think it was actually Davis Maddock who on Twitter posted something like, here's my bold call for best ball this year, next season's like the, the hotness topic that everyone's going to be talking about, you know, this year or is, is week 17 correlations and, um, and playing for week 17, which, which you covered in depth, kind of why that is important, but his call, which I completely agree on for what that would be next year is this idea of unique early round pairings that I think we're going to get into a little bit uh, more in depth here in a minute, jumping back. The notes that I took that I would want the listeners to to really take from what you just said, you covered same teams blowing up in consecutive weeks and how that affects recency bias going forward. What does that mean or what kind of form does that take on this year? That is your uh, emphasis on primary correlations. That is rosters having one correlated uh, team and calling it done. Uh it, it goes so much more in depth to like why that is, but you look at the, the singularity of last season and why people are viewing this season's best ball through that lens. And it was just like Cincinnati and Joe Burrow threw eight touchdowns over a two week span when it mattered. And that is what people saw. And they're like, okay, I just need to stack up a team and I'm good to go. Well, not really. Right. So we covered that. You talked about that. You also talked about the paths to a blow up game and how that uh, could be different than, you know, the bare bones case that the field is kind of viewing this through is primary correlations. And they're stacking up the primary correlations. They're saying, this game is a shootout. I want the quarterback with the primary pass catcher with a, either the running back from the opposite team or a wide receiver bring back. It's like, that is how a game blows up. And it's like, well, there's so many other paths to blow up games that I dug into uh, on Twitter and then I dug into on podcasts. I dug into in the Best Ball Plus product where it's like, hey, four of the 18 Millie Maker winners last year, their primary stack consisted of a quarterback, a running back, and a primary pass catcher from that team. What kind of game flow or game script does that cover? Well, that's like a blowout type game script. So I talked, we talked about that in depth, kind of that thought process when we had Zandemir on uh, last week and kind of that single game uh, showdown mindset and really digging into how individual game scripts can develop and what is the best way to like maximize the upside for those individual game scripts. This is, these are all things that the field is not thinking about. Also, you covered uh, something I touched on um, last week as well with this idea of quarterback and tight end pairings, because when we're stacking up a team, we're looking for those touchdowns. Tight end is the position with the heaviest reliance on touchdowns for their scoring, just because it's a lower volume position across the league. It's the highest variance position, yada, 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 all the things that we've covered through this podcast series. So what is the field not doing to leverage that fact? It's like there, there's very little tight end quarterback pairings uh, yeah, to and maximize. Hey, uh I'll jump in too to say uh, the, the, all these injuries, right? Like a Dalton Schultz, everyone's like Jalen Tolbert's ADP was skyrocketing after reports that Michael Gallup will miss one or two weeks. And it's like Dalton Schultz is just sitting there in the exact same spot. Mm -hmm. When, when a team loses a player or, or uh, another example is Marquise Brown being drafted, you know, in the third, fourth round because DeAndre Hopkins is missing six games and, 
but Zach Ertz is static, right? People aren't mm-hmm. thinking, oh, maybe this tight end ends up seeing extra volume or extra touchdowns. Maybe this tight end gains some value. And it's like tight end becomes this sort of hidden position. And that's, yeah, those quarterback tight end pairings. And it's something, one of the podcasts that uh, you hosted three or four weeks ago on here, where I forget which guest it was, but they were, it might've been Chess Liam, but they were talking about these backup tight ends who don't, they didn't phrase it like this, but basically these deeper backup tight ends who aren't the reason you make the playoffs. But if they get that random two touchdown game in the playoffs, nobody else has them because they're just on random rosters. They weren't part of getting any teams to the playoffs. And so they're maybe on six, seven, eight percent of all the rosters in the playoffs because they're just on eight percent of all teams, right? So they're just randomly mm-hmm. on a few teams in the playoffs, and then they score that two touchdown game. And so yeah, I think tight end there, I mean, there's so many edges to play around with at, at tight end, such a unique position in best ball. But yeah, thinking about those quarterback tight end pairings that people just aren't on because that's not the primary way that they think about a game playing out. Yeah, it uh, directly into another piece of content that we are going to be launching here fairly soon. And that has to do with One Week Seasons YouTube uh, channel. We're going to be launching some, uh, some, we call them community drafts, which is a member of the OWS community is joining one of the primary contributors here at OWS. And we are basically there just along for the ride talking strategy guiding them through a draft, talking about what we're thinking about when we're drafting a best ball team. Uh, So there's a good opportunity to kind of get behind the scenes uh, into the minds of the primary contributors here at best ball through the lens of an actual draft and live. Taking that one step further, we're also doing some solo drafts. I actually recorded last night my first solo draft of the year. And that roster, a little sneak peek, that roster was over on DraftKings where it's 20-person uh, roster. And I actually left the draft with three quarterbacks and three tight ends all correlated, which was uh, something that no one in the field is doing. Uh, so little shout out there. Check out uh, here shortly the OWS YouTube channel, uh, which those, you're going to see those here shortly. Uh, quick breather. <laughs> the other, uh, the other big picture items that I wanted to pull out from what you, uh, what you brought to the table there, uh, with that intro, um, field tendencies with primary correlations, the idea of secondary correlations and, and capturing more paths to varying game, uh, flows and scripts, uh, through the lens of like a singular. And when we're, you know, when all the money is in week 17, obviously that is the most important uh, thing to us. So capturing those secondary correlations, early round pairings that we're going to talk here shortly, ownership consolidation through the playoff rounds. You, uh, your uh, example was Cooper Cup, um, and then the idea of the next year's strategies. So all of that, and this is stuff that we've talked about over the last eight weeks, but all of that stuff you just spoke to in one like mega monologue, which was absolutely like I was over here salivating. I was like, I'm taking notes because I want, I want to bring all this stuff out. Uh, so that was absolutely amazing to hear you, uh, your perspective here this year. I, I think too, you know, it, it's like we get in the habit of thinking we need to hear something once to really get it. And I, I liken it to thinking you need to clean a house one time and that does it. I was literally listening to the your your one week season best ball podcast on this feed while drafting like over the last few weeks 
And it would make me a smarter drafter just listening while drafting because it's like planting new thoughts in my head and saying, oh yeah, like I need to be thinking about this. I, I need to be considering this angle. Have I thought about this thing that they're talking about? And that's what like... I can kind of, we can talk about it and condense it into 15 minutes, but that's not the same as getting it, right? To get mm-hmm. it, you keep hearing it, you keep reading this content and you keep drafting and paying attention during your drafts. And I said earlier in my podcast earlier that I kind of, my my hope, my goal is that let's say you've done 15, 20, 25, 50 total best ball drafts in your quote, best ball drafting career. Well, ideally, instead of you having to learn a lot of things through trial and error, we're able to provide these podcasts and this content and it kind of adds layers. So it's almost as if you've done an extra 50, extra hundred drafts of your own because you have that extra knowledge already in hand. And so, yeah, I mean, it's great to like condense it into a compact little package, but we still like this stuff. You just got to keep hearing it and thinking about it. Same with DFS. You have to stay sharp in order to stay sharp, right? If you're not, then you're falling behind everybody else. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's so valuable what we've been able to roll out this year. It makes me excited for, for next year as well. We'll, we'll have a little bit more time as far as, uh, from like post draft all the way to kickoff the edge there is going to be incredible. Yeah, for sure. And that's, uh, I think that's a perspective on general best ball and field tendencies uh, that you and I agree on is that there is that inherent edge of drafting as early as possible um, because there there's so many unknowns, but the field is kind of looking to minimize their exposure to those unknowns during that period. Uh, whereas, you know, if you really press the variance and if you really embrace uh, and accept that we, we don't know what we don't know, um, you're able to build these rosters that could turn into uh, these like quote unquote super rosters, the most, I guess the simplest example I can give of that. Um, and from that perspective is these running backs who were part of ambiguous backfields, um, that were going in the ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th rounds, uh, even to start this draft season. You know, some of those guys, we talked about them before. Uh, Melvin Gordon is one. Uh, we know my feelings on him at this point. Chase Edmonds, uh, Rashad Penny. But during to to highlight how I embraced that variance associated with that early draft window, I was trying and, and seeking building zero, you know, quote unquote, zero running back builds. We all know my feelings on, on labels on rosters, so I won't get into that, but Seeking out the attempt to wait on running back, knowing that there's these late guys who could turn into the alphas on their team that were sitting in the ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th round sometimes. And then if if you're embracing that variance early, and again, this is just one example, you're, you have the the path to these super teams because now your quarterbacks are stacked, your, your wide receivers are stacked on those rosters, your tight ends are stacked, and now you're giving yourself one or two pieces that have to go right in order for you to just build this unique roster that no one else throughout the rest of the draft season is going to have because once more information comes into the fold, those guys are obviously very naturally going to increase in ADP. And then, so I have these rosters where it was like Rashad Penny and Chase Edmonds were my RB1 and RB2, throwing Kareem Hunt into that as well. We all know my Dearness Johnson love, but like waiting until like, the very the back half of drafts just to take my RB one, which is like absurd to most of the field, um, and and d- doing that by leveraging the variance that is associated with that early draft window. I know you have some perspectives on that as well. How are you viewing 
this idea of when you're drafting. So the draft window and very. Yeah. And you and I, you and I were talking about this the other night was just the, it's interesting because I almost always finish my drafts between the hall of fame game and kickoff of like the first real preseason weekend. Yeah. So any of the guys who rise throughout preseason, I don't get in on those, you know, cause there's guys who there's injuries that happen, but there's also guys who kind of come out of nowhere and move from like being undrafted to going around round 13, 14. Right. So I'm typically trying to minimize my loss there by staying super up to date on training camp reports. And so, for example, last year with it, by the time, the preseason was underway. Ramondre Stevenson started shooting up draft boards, but by the time I finished my drafts, he was still largely going undrafted. Mm-hmm. And I had 15 to 20% Ramondre Stevenson in the 18th round because I knew what that Patriots backfield could turn into. And I'd been paying close enough attention to training camp reports to understand that, okay, well, this there's a viable opportunity for Ramondre Stevenson to have a nice season. Well, then another example is 2019, uh, Darwin Thompson. Was that his name on the on the Chiefs? Yeah. Um, Darwin Thompson. I had I was hyping up Darwin Thompson. Apparently nobody listens to me because his ADP didn't change. I was hyping <laughs> up Darwin Thompson. I had I had like probably 15% Darwin Thompson. And then preseason started and the hype starts building. And now he's getting drafted in like the 13th, the 12th, 13th, 14th round by the time it's all said and done. And so I'm able to be like, okay, well, thankfully I got my exposure early. I was finishing my drafts a little bit later that year and chased a little bit of the climb, but I got most of my exposure much deeper. And so when he cratered, it was like, well, that's okay. You don't mind cratering an 18th round pick as long as you're targeting upside. The way that you were saying that about the running backs being drafted in the second half of the draft, the the Rashad Pennies and Chase Edmonds, one of the questions I like to ask myself right around that range, which now is like the eighth to 10th round, but like around that range of, or, or even like the seventh to 10th round of players is I like to ask myself, could this player be one of the stories of the season? And I think that what people tend to instead ask is why could this player fail? Mm-hmm. I've seen so many articles like telling people not to draft Rashad Penny because he's on a bad offense and they've got Kenneth Walker there. And well, they only gave him a one-year contract and then they drafted Kenneth Walker. Well, that was because they didn't think that Chris Carson was going to be back. And people played it up like a, like it was a surprise when he retired a couple of weeks ago, but it was like, since the spring, it seemed pretty evident that Chris Carson had a very little chance of coming back. And so the Seahawks were kind of layering in their backfield. We have no idea what's going to happen with, with Kenneth Walker. But what we do know is that Rashad Penny has a chance to be one of the stories of the season. Maybe he won't be, right? Maybe he'll bomb, but we're not concerned about that because we're trying to get to first place. And so uh, if we can find, I, I, I liken it to Amon Ross St. Brown last year and how easy it was to be like, well, I'm not taking this guy in what, like the 140s or wherever he was being drafted. I'm not yeah. taking this guy because... He's on a bad offense. Well, all of a sudden we get deeper into the season. You can't predict that TJ Hawkinson is going to be out and DeAndre Swift is going to be out. And it's going to turn out that Amon Ross St. Brown is literally uncoverable and that yeah. Jared Goff is just going to pepper him with underneath targets. And he's going to be a top four wide receiver across the last eight weeks of the season. And so if you overthink some of these things, 
you end up missing out on the potential ceiling that's there. Don't don't ask the questions of like, okay, well, how could this guy disappoint? How could this guy fail? But like, could this guy be one of the stories of the season? Could, is there a chance Chase Edmonds runs away with that Dolphins role? So that's just kind of like a side trail on that. But yeah, the early drafting window to me is is superior because people are more and more afraid. It's funny because it's more and more hardcore best ball drafters who are drafting early, mm-hmm. but they're more and more afraid of sinking $25 into some uncertain picks that don't end up playing out. And you invest a lot of time into drafting your best ball portfolio, but I still try to think of it as, as a DFS weekend. Like this is, I'm basically, if I have a DFS weekend that goes poorly, but my strategy was good, I'm okay with that. And to take that a step further, I went heavy on Zeke in the Cabo holdout year because mm-hmm. it was like, what, everybody thinks he's he's going to miss games. Nobody misses games when they hold out. It never happens. And then he ends up missing games and he yeah. comes back and he's not himself. It takes forever for him to integrate in, in, into the office. And I lose all those rosters. And then last year, Michael Thomas, I was buying fear like crazy on Michael Thomas in the eighth and ninth rounds. But Michael Thomas ends up not playing all season. All of those rosters are hurt because of that. Well, that's okay because I'm targeting first place. This year, same thing with Alvin Kamara. I've got 34% Alvin Kamara and 95% of those picks were in the third round or later. Well, that was buying fear at that point. I was buying fear that he was going to miss six games. Obviously, you still like to have a guy who can put up 30 points in the playoff weeks, but people were afraid that he's going to miss these games. And I'm saying, yeah, but all the time, these suspensions come way later than we expect. So let me load up on Alvin Kamara. And so sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does. But drafting in that early drafting window gives you an opportunity to get players who are way more mispriced. And so you miss out on the preseason. Go- I mean, are, are you still, you still have drafts left, right? Or are you just about done? I've maxed uh, underdog BBM. and That's I right, but am, you still have DraftKings. I still have DraftKings, yeah. Okay. So if you are drafting, like if if you are able to draft during both periods. Great. Right. But like if you max out and you're done and then preseason kicks off, you're going to miss out on some of these late risers, but it's rare that those guys are going to be league winners. And ideally the guys who could be league winners, you at least were getting some of them in the 17th, 18th round before then. So yeah, I think there's pros and cons to both sides, but uh, this kind of speaks to the fact that we're launching this product so much earlier next year. I think that drafting early gives you a natural edge just because people are a little bit more afraid to embrace that uncertainty. And so you end up getting these, like, like you said, these super teams where you're getting guys in the seventies who are going to be drafted in the fifties, two months later and guys in the one twenties or one thirties who will be drafted in the nineties. And so you can just build rosters that when you're in week 16, other people are going to look at the roster and be like, did this guy cheat? Like, how did this guy build this roster? And yeah, yeah you just can't do that if you wait until all of the ADP starts shaking out. Yeah, it was, uh, I was actually at my daughter's swim lessons today and I was digging through some of my very, very early uh, BBM entries on Underdog. And I pulled out some teams that I posted on the Twitter machine that were like 115s and then into the 120s on like Rashad Penny and uh, Chase Edmonds. And I'm just continuing this example. They're going at like pick 73, 75, somewhere in there now on some of these sites. Uh, so it's insane to, you know, that they're to see their ADPs from that range, basically taken just shaving 33% off of it. And like, that's where they're going right now. And I built these teams 
two months ago that had them as like my RB1, RB2. I have no idea if they're going to work out. But like, again, just continuing that example of embracing the variance early. The reason why I decided to max so early on underdog is because I know underdog is generally speaking a sharper field than DraftKings. DraftKings has a bigger user base. They have a lower barrier to entry in an only $5 contest. There's all these reasons why the user base on DraftKings is is softer, we'll say, per draft. And that's a generalization of the field um, than it is over on underdog. So I wanted to, I, I guess, pairing that idea with my my observations over on underdog, I saw very early that the field was just not embracing this this variance associated with the unknowns of drafting early so i was like through five drafts i was like okay i guess i'm gonna be maxing this thing in the next six weeks because i want to just embrace all the variants i can on individual rosters allow my portfolio as i build across two or three different sites maxing each of them to kind of even that exposure out and that's how i'm managing my variance so that's how i approached it i think that is extremely sharp. I think we're in agreement there um, about the the variance associated with dif- different draft windows. And again, it's a it's a trade-off because as you mentioned, there we're just not going to be there's going to be guys in camp that we're going to miss. There's going to be injuries in camp that we like could not have have foreseen and and gone as overweight as we wanted to uh having, you know, had we known that information. So there's that delicate dance that I I, I I think I likened it to a salsa earlier where every move has a counter move and you have to be, you have to understand what you are giving up in order to maximize what you want to do. And and I guess that goes into how individual or I guess individual draft strategies and how you approach these contests. But um, from the perspective of OWS and, and hunting for the edges that are not being discussed. That was a big one for me this year. And that's kind of why I hammered it so early. Yeah, uh, and, so- I, and I, I like to, uh, you guys talked about it at one of the pods a few weeks ago about with the rake, as soon as you've entered a draft, just speaking to people being, you know, not being willing to embrace uncertainty. As soon as you've entered a draft, your $25 has turned into $23 essentially. Mm-hmm. And then if you advance to round 15, what is it? $35 payout, right? Like it just doesn't make sense to enter one of these drafts and then try to protect that money. The point is not to try to protect that money. The point is to try to give yourself as many shots at first place as possible. And so I think that, yeah, by paying attention to the places where there is uncertainty and drafting a little bit earlier, you get to take advantage in a way where, yes, maybe some of your rosters are wrong and those rosters are just dead in the water, but you're also going to have rosters that just literally cannot be built a couple months later, which gives you a, a pretty significant edge in that regard. Yeah, for sure. Another example of that, kind of what we're alluding to here is is Isaiah McKenzie. You know, coming into the offseason or after the NFL draft, he was just perceived as the wide receiver four in Buffalo, right? We had no idea. The assumption was they brought in Jameson Crowder to be the starting slot wide receiver in Buffalo. That still might be the case, but I have 27% exposure to 18th round Isaiah McKenzie. And why I did that, it was basically for me, it was I want the cheapest exposure to the potential top scoring offense in the league. And he is available. He's going undrafted sometimes. I just want all of it that I can fit into my portfolio on this contest. Now he's, you know, a 12th, 13th, 14th round guy and still climbing. 
So these leveraging the unknowns and just you want to be targeting the the players that have the legitimate paths to um, giving you a path to to putting together these super teams. So I think that kind of ties the bow on uh, that. And now I want to jump back to something we alluded to earlier, which is these this idea of unique pairings in the early rounds. Um, you talked about it a little bit through your exploration of that roster. And uh, again, it's covered more in depth uh, in the Best Ball Plus segment that you did over there. But I want to expand on this idea a little bit in the how we go about getting unique in the early rounds. And I want to hear, I want to throw it over to you and then I'll kind of give my perspective on, on a little bit of an archetype idea that, uh, that I have here. Yeah. So a couple of things I think are important is one is to think about points and really understand what you're trying to get on your roster and what's possible for you to get on your roster. So Cooper cup, was about a 350 point player last year. Jonathan Taylor was what 325, 350, somewhere in that range. Uh, Derek Henry put up 323 a couple years ago. Dalvin Cook put up 315 a couple years ago. Joe Mixon put up 265 ish last year. Najee Harris put up 265 ish last year. And so that's kind of what you're getting from picks one through. 12, 15, 18 is guys who maybe things come together and they actually score 300 points. Otherwise, you know, they're going to score 200 to 250. Then as you get down to like the third round, the fourth round, the fifth round, all you're really targeting is guys with varying degrees of certainty to make it to 200 points. Like Terry McLaurin has never cracked 200 underdog points in his career. He's a fourth round pick. If things go well for him, if he gets some more touchdowns this year, maybe hit some more big plays, he gets up over 200 points, but he's not, not going to be a 250 point producer in that offense. Cortland Sutton has not been able to stay healthy. We've got this new offense with Russ and he could actually put up 250 points, but he also has a lot more uncertainty. He could totally bomb. And so as you're going through these rounds, what you start realizing is it feels like a big gap to jump from like, if you're at pick 16 to take a guy whose who's ADP is pick 23 or something, right? It feels mm-hmm. like you're jumping so far, but really when you break it down, the big difference is a lot of time, maybe not pick 16 to 23, but especially as you get into like the end of the second round, into the third round, the, the real difference is just, hey, this guy either feels a little bit better to draft, there's a little bit less uncertainty on him, or maybe he's like a little bit safer of a bet to get to 200 points, a little bit more likely. But if we can separate our roster from what everybody else is doing, and all that requires is a player who's a little bit riskier or a little bit less likely to get to 200 points, well, the edge gained from having a totally different roster is so much greater than the edge lost by giving up that little bit of extra certainty. And so one of the things that I want to do in those first few rounds is think about what other people with those picks will be doing. Generally speaking, they're going to follow ADP. And generally speaking, ADP doesn't change that much, right? I've been kind of had my my teeth sunk into these underdog best ball streets for like a little over a month now. And generally speaking, most guys have moved, you know, a couple spots in those top picks. There's a few guys who've moved a little bit more, but generally speaking, people drafting a month ago still had the same options available to them. If they had pick five, they had the same general options available to them in their second and third round picks as they do now. And so, so many of these rosters are just going to look similar. 
As I said earlier, we have to understand that a lot of first round picks are not going to pan out. Guys are going to get hurt. Roles are going to be different than we expect. Guys are going to be randomly ineffective. And so if you have a first round pick that actually performs like a first round pick, if you have a first round pick that actually gets you 300 plus points, well, that player is doing a lot of work to get you to the finals or to the playoffs. Because you really need like, what, 16, 17, 1800 points to make it to the playoffs. And -hmm. there's 300 of your points right there in one of your eight starting spots. And so now you have to think ahead and think, okay, now in week 15, I'm going to be competing against a ton of Cooper Cup rosters, a ton of Jonathan Taylor rosters, because he was one of the few first round picks that really performed the way that everyone wanted him to. And so you needed to get fewer things right. So you get a lot more of those rosters. And so then if all those rosters look the same from there, it's so much tougher to move on from there. And so thinking about the way I try to gauge it is if I go to click on a player and my reaction is like, I can't do that. Then I know other people feel that way. Yeah. And I know that it's that much less likely that people are making that pick. You know, if, if Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews do what they did last year, that's not a given who knows, but if they do what they did last year, then you get 300 points at the tight end position by having both of them. And the next highest scoring tight end is going to put up 175 to 180. And then you're going to have a bunch of people with rosters that only get 130, 140 points from their tight end position. You're so far ahead of everybody at that one position. And you advance to the next round because of that. And you're competing against nobody who has it. How many drafts have you done where Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews ended up on the same roster, it would be a very small percentage for anybody because it just feels so, it feels gross to take two tight ends that early. It feels gross at pick 13 or 14 to jump all the way to ADP of 21 and click on Mark Andrews' name. And if that pairing ends up paying off, I'm going to have 10% of my rosters going through to the second round, to the uh, second round of the first round of the playoffs because of that. And I'll be competing against nobody because it's such a non-natural pairing. Another one that you and I were talking about the other night was Joe Mixon and Mark Andrews, because Joe Mixon, you never see people. I've seen it once, right? Somebody took him with like pick seven in a draft. You almost never see people reach for Joe Mixon. Mm -hmm. Joe Mixon is like the, okay, all the other first round picks are gone. I got stuck with Joe Mixon. And so the last thing that somebody wants to do with when they get Joe Mixon at pick 12 or 13 is then say, okay, now with my next pick, I'm going to jump all the way down to this guy whose ADP is at 20, 21 and take Mark Andrews. It's just such a non-natural pairing. Nobody's taking, you know, with the natural spot to take Mark Andrews, they're not taking Joe Mixon because that would be like pick six or seven, five, six, seven. So they don't have Mixon and then they get Andrews or they get Mixon and they don't get Andrews. And so that was one that when I went to do it, it was like, oh God, this feels gross to click on this Mark Andrews button now. And I was like, well, that's a good thing. You know, like there's still yeah. good players and there's still an edge gain in having one of the top tight ends. And we don't, there's so much we don't know. Maybe both of these guys are first round picks next year and I'm getting them both on this roster and nobody else has this pairing. And most importantly, again, it's just like if Mixon is the guy who gets you to the playoffs, well, now if Mixon has a down week and Mark Andrews has a huge week, or even if Mixon has a huge week, And Mark Andrews has a huge week, right? Now you're kind of filtering out all these other Joe Mixon rosters because they don't have Mark Andrews on their roster. And so, yeah, I want to always look for those non-natural pairings and I don't do it on every draft, right? And especially if like, 
if something falls to me that's just unique, where it's like, well, I didn't plan to take this player, but they've fallen to pick 17. They're usually gone by pick 12. I'm going to do that, right? Like I'm, I'm always flexible depending on how the draft falls, but I always want to be thinking about, okay, what's my first pick? And then what would somebody else not be doing with these next few picks so that I have just a very unique foundation of really good players and different combos that everybody else is going to have. And I, and I honestly, I think that's as important as or more important than having a stack for week 17. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not finding ways it doesn't have to be in those first four rounds, but if you're not finding ways to significantly differentiate your roster, then you don't have any better shot at first place than anybody else who's stacking the same games as you're stacking. Yeah. And one of the most important things that I think you covered there is, and and this is, I'll go, I'll kind of relate it to how I keep this idea straight in my mind. If we think about how you can create unique pairings in the first, you know, the we'll say the first five rounds. If you think about how you have to go about doing that, it's either A, you reach, or B, you get value to fall to you. So those are the ways to generate these unique pairings. One, No one way is better than the other or worse than the other, but those are just basically how I keep it straight. Those are the only two ways to generate these unique pairings in the early rounds. So I'm not going to cover, I'm not going to speak too long on having ADP fall or getting you know ADP values to create these unique pairings because that's very self-explanatory. I want to focus on the reaching part and the way I keep it straight in my mind is I'm not just like reaching on any and every player at different drafts to create these unique pairings. I'm hunting for archetypes of players. So to put it as bluntly as possible, I'm not going to be reaching on a guy like Nick Chubb in the first three rounds, a guy who doesn't have as great uh, of chance or as many paths to be like the overall running back one. That's kind of what I'm hunting for. I'm hunting for I, the players. I think I have, I think I have one Nick Chubb roster. <laughs> yeah, dude, I know. <laughs> but it's, it's exactly. It's like, you're saying what, what, who could be one of the stories of this season? Like so many things would have to go right for Nick Chubb to be one of the stories of the season, because if mm-hmm. Kareem Hunt goes down, then Dearness Johnson steps up. Like if, if Jared Johnson goes down, Demetric Felton steps up, yeah. they're going to find a way to lighten the workload on this guy. And so I've like, even deeper in the draft, I'm looking for that. Like, what is the guy, what, who's the, who's in an offense where they can actually become some sort of blow up piece. That's, that's very different from the guy who just could end up with a role. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great example there because taking Nick Chubb there at 24, 25, whatever, it it doesn't give you a path to that number one overall running back. You were in a great great group that I was actually enjoying listening to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna send it, send you back into that group. But it was <laughs> uh, I wanted to, I wanted to mention <laughs> all coach. I wanted to mention uh, the Nick Chubb thing just because yeah. I every time I see, saw Nick Chubb's name, it was like I think he fell to me once at like pick 31 or 32, and I was like, okay, well, I'll do something different here. And then that felt awful to me. But you know, yeah. The, the uh, tying the the knot on that bow of Nick Chubb, I think I have two or three Nick Chubb rosters on underdog, and they were fourth round. Like it was impossible. I don't know how it happened, but like talking about that is one way to create that unique pairing. It's like okay, fourth round, like give me some. Uh, but yeah, I do not have a lot. But the what I was trying to get to to like along that thought process is if you are reaching, I'll I'll liken it to this. If you are, if 
let me let me I want to phrase this correctly. If ADP, if we assume that ADP is 100% accurate, the optimal way to draft would be to follow ADP at every pick. We know that is not the case. We know that ADP is this fluid dynamic uh, blob of just random assortments of snapshots in time. And, and the way I think this is important too, is to understand how, how ADP is generated on these sites is they basically taking a two day rolling average of the drafts that have happened in the last 48 hours. So that's why you see these massive movers. That's why you see gainers, losers. Uh, and that's why you see the changes in ADP over the landscape of an entire draft season. But going back, if Oh man, now I'm getting down this rabbit hole. I'm losing my train of thought. But if <laughs> if we are targeting these guys in the top round, I want to make sure that they have the path to be the overall like RB1 or wide receiver one, the overall performer at their position. And by keeping it in my mind uh, or keeping it straight in my mind uh, via that, it's going to weed out these guys like Nick Chubb. It's going to bring these unique pairing combinations that if we're straying from ADP again, we have to have a good reason to be straying from this idea or this feeling of optimal. Majority of where that comes in is with this idea of leverage that we're trying to create by these early round unique pairings. So by hunting these guys that have clear paths to the overall one uh, at their respective positions, we are giving ourselves a path to generating leverage without sacrificing um, or the path or the leverage that we are creating outweighs the EV that is lost by straying from optimal. So if you think about it in that light, there are very, not very few, but because most of the guys in the first three rounds have a legitimate path to the overall, you know, one at their position. But now we have to think about this through the lens of this fluid and dynamic ADP. The example that I've brought up in the past is Saquon Barkley because he started in the middle of the third round. He has now since jumped up to the middle of the second round, and it seems like that steam is not slowing down. So that's a guy that I was targeting very heavily early on as this, you know, trying to identify the guys that could climb. But that said, I have not stopped taking Saquon Barkley. You don't have to stop taking a guy even if he you know, went from middle of the third to middle of the second, you need to change the way that you are taking this guy. So the one of the examples that I like to use here to highlight this idea of shaking up these early round pairings is Travis Kelsey and Saquon Barkley. Because Travis Kelsey has lived habitually in the back half of the first round, and his ADP has not naturally lined up with Saquon as he has moved up. So by reaching for Saquon to get him at the beginning of the second. Another example of that is uh, that I've just recently started throwing in is DeAndre Swift and Saquon Barkley. Because again, even though Saquon has moved from the middle of the third to the middle of the second, right, you know, now DeAndre Swift and Saquon are back to back in ADP, their ADPs have never lined up. Like you could not take a DeAndre Swift at the end or the beginning of the, the second round or the middle of the second round and had the ability to take Saquon because you wouldn't pick again until he was taken. So by Saquon moving up, I'm still taking Saquon because I have him currently ranked as the overall RB4 on the season. So I want my Saquon. I'm still getting him, but I'm changing the way that I'm taking him and I'm altering those early round pairings to do so. So if you think about 
the two ways and, and closing the loop on this whole thought process and discussion, if you think about the two ways that we are generating um, early round unique pairings, again, fallers in ADP, very self-explanatory. But now if you break down the you know reaching per ADP to generate this leverage, I want to be targeting a, a specific archetype that could have a path to overall one at their position. Yeah, the Saquon and and Swift one is super interesting because it's again you pay attention to the way it feels to do it. Now, once you've done it a few times, you just realize it's sharp and you keep doing it. Like by my third or fourth Kelsey Andrews roster, it was like, hope I get another Kelsey Andrews, right? Like, yeah. The first couple of times, you're like, oh god, what am I doing? And and so if you think about ADPs of like. 15 to 17 on Swift and Saquon. Well, if you have the picks at the turn, right? If your picks 12 and 13 or 11 and 14, Mm -hmm. there are other players there at 11 or 12 that would feel a lot better to take than DeAndre Swift. Unless Mm -hmm. you're just like, oh, I've got a high level of confidence on DeAndre Swift. You're passing on higher certainty guys and it feels like you're doing something wrong to go click that button. And then your next pick, you're going to reach again. You're going to leave some other key players on the board. You've already jumped ADP. So at least one player has fallen and, you know, maybe some other players have fallen throughout that first round. And you're going to have to bypass some of those guys in order to take Saquon Barkley. And then you're going to look up and somebody at pick 18 has been able to take Joe Mixon or pick 19 has been able to take Joe Mixon because of a couple moves that you made, right? Like you were reaching on these deeper guys. And then that's another little pang where you're like, oh God, did I do the right thing? And understanding that you have those thoughts is then being able to understand that, oh, I can extrapolate these thoughts out to the masses in general. Like the masses would also feel this way, which means the masses are not getting this pairing at any point. Yep. I think we sufficiently beat that horse dead. Um, the last we've really covered a lot of, of (laughs) what we wanted to get through. And it's just been this very natural flowing back and forth, but there was one thing that kind of fell out of the loop and that is how awesome is Traylon Burks. I'm just kidding. That is a complete joke. I (laughs) I posted the, uh, the lineup and the, the outline for this podcast, uh, to Twitter as a, as a teaser, like, Hey, we got JM, man, this is awesome. High fives. Uh, and I left how awesome is Traylon Burks in there as a joke and no one said anything. And I'm kind of irked by it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Traylon Burks is awesome. We're going to move on past that. The last thing we're going to talk about is handling news cycles, uh, because that is the most pertinent thing that is available to us as we're drafting right now. So we have these wild news cycle swings, player blurbs. We have beat writer reports. We have, you know, uh, (laughs) little snippets from a quote from a coach. We have all this stuff that is going on as we're drafting now, which is just prior to the first full week of the preseason. So kind of how are you handling these uh, news cycles? And this kind of goes into also one of the first questions that was asked in the first iteration um, of, oh God, what do we call it? The, now I'm the Oracle. Like, the Oracle. Yeah. The Oracle that we posted in the scroll. Um, so that was one of the questions there, but how are you viewing this, you know, the, these highs and lows, these peaks and valleys of the news cycle and how much stock more importantly are you placing in that? I, I, it kind of makes me think of, okay, like, okay, why are so many good DFS players, former 
financial advisors or investment bankers or investors, right? I think Cubs fan is, 333 is like this phenomenal investor and phenomenal DFS player. Well, it's under how not to get sucked up in the FOMO that's going on in mm-hmm. different areas in both directions, right? If any, if any of you have done crypto, you think about your first year in crypto, whether it was the 2016-17 cycle or the 2021 cycle, and almost everybody has this experience of thinking that you know that when the when the prices start because you don't see it in typical finance where like 10-15% gains is you've had a great year, right? But in crypto where it's like all of a sudden things are going 10x and 15x and 20x. And it's usually around that point that everybody starts jumping in. That's why the prices keep going up. I remember mm-hmm. talking to my nephew, uh, what was that, last year, like May of last year, and he was like, well, yeah, I've got to get some safe moon because it's gone up like 250x. And I got it, and it's like, that's how people think naturally is like, this has gone up a ton, so I have to get it. This has gone down a ton, so I don't get it. Whereas realistically, it's the reverse of that. If something's yeah. gone up a ton, you missed the boat. Maybe it keeps going up a little bit more, but it will eventually plummet. If something has plummeted a lot and it's a project that's still going to be here in a few years, well, now's the time to buy. And so it's similar with the news cycles in, especially as we get into August and the heat of the NFL season is upon us and people start overreacting to these very small news blurbs. And so what's most interesting to me, I mean, I'm in an ideal situation in that my job at this time of year includes keeping up with training camp of all 32 teams, right? So a lot of times I will read the actual report. A day later, I'll see the blurb in Roto World and it it interprets like it overinterprets the article yeah or it interprets it well beyond what it needs to it interprets things way beyond the potential fantasy ramifications but roto world is such a trusted source that everybody in the dfs street or in the best ball streets is generally paying attention to it and generally doesn't have the time to read all the training camp reports and so everybody kind of tends to overreact to these little pieces of news and i think that throughout august we start seeing even bigger rises and falls in adp and let's take the darwin thompson example again right all that happened was a few kind of really super positive blurbs and then all of a sudden the steam starts picking up. So now he's moving so fast that people start thinking, man, like I keep missing out on Darwin. I, I don't have any Darwin Thompson shares. I've got to get some of them. Okay. I'll get him in the 14th round. They get to the 14th round and he's gone. And then, so the next draft, they're like, man, maybe I need to get him in the 13th round, but somebody else is already thinking that we saw it with Deshaun Watson, uh, whatever, a week or two ago, like yeah. it was six game suspension. All of a sudden his ADP jumps from like the one seventies to the one thirties. And then the NFL appeals, which we already knew they were going to do. And all of a sudden he falls back to the one sixties and it's this whiplash stuff. And we see more and more of it as we get closer to the season. So one of the things that I ideally would want to do is actually know the deeper context, know the full report. It's one of the reasons why we have that deeper context piece in the BB plus scroll. But if I don't have the time for that, I also just want to understand that, Hey, a lot of these, I guess it's like this. If it's like a role situation, if it's like the Packers wide receiver two role, where it's like, we really don't know who could take that role 
and it could be a really good offense. And I think that Lazard has a huge season, but we don't know that. We don't know that Lazard's actually going to be the alpha. So whoever wins this wide receiver two role could actually end up being the alpha of this offense when it's all said and done. And so it, things like that, right? It's okay to like jump on. It's like you were saying with, with Saquon, if you have faith in this player and you think he's still undervalued in the second round, well then go for it, right? Keep taking it. And so if a player's moving and you can say, well, the, even the Darwin Thompson, if it was like, well, I think he could be the RB one for this explosive chiefs offense then it's worth chasing those moves but generally speaking these moves start happening on guys who are just like vying for backup roles or it's the blurbs that came out and were worded in just a particular way but we already knew that this was probably going to be the case for this player and so adp gets kind of out of whack from that and then my favorite is the negative reports where they read a lot into, and, and I'm not picking on Roto World, I have an enormous amount of respect for Roto World. We have good relationships with a lot of the people over there, but just like the nature of what they do, right? They're taking full reports and condensing it to little blurbs. And so it'll have kind of a negative spin on this blurb and a player starts plummeting. Well, generally speaking, I want to buy that fear. I've been through this cycle enough times to know that if you go through that process of saying like, oh man, well, I can't draft this guy because his blurb said this and now this guy's dropping, right? Well, I'm not taking him. Well, by the time the season comes around, that blurb is a month in the rear view mirror. It means nothing to anybody. It was just kind of conjecture to begin with. And you missed out on an opportunity to buy this guy two rounds later, right? So like I had almost no Miles Sanders. All of a sudden he starts dropping from you know, pick 71, 72 down to pick 87, 88, 90. And it's like, well, okay, here's a good chance for me to get some Miles Sanders exposure. Not a player who I love, but I certainly am not going to pass him up at a discount when I can build a roster that, you know, half the people who drafted couldn't build this roster. And so, yeah, I, I kind of think that the biggest edge is just in underreacting to news, unless it's like, on a very young player where we know very little about them and there's an open role for them. Outside of that type of situation, I think that the overreactions of news play to our favor if we can kind of keep our emotions under control and not be afraid of missing out on what's happening and embrace some uncertainty or embrace some fear if a player is falling. Yeah, the the 2022 historical example, obviously, that you brought up earlier was Alvin Kamara, where it was like you could leave a draft with like CMC uh, Saquon Barkley and Alvin Kamara for a while. And it was like, okay, <laughs> like I want that uh, because I know that that is probably not going to be available at any other time. Like it doesn't matter whether or not like Alvin Kamara does get suspended. That's that drafting in fear. I want to draft a roster as if all of my players are going to remain healthy the entire year and they're all going to play the entire season. If you go with that mindset, like you're able to build this like CMC Saquon Barkley, Alvin Kamara roster that is going to be very low owned from the like overall field because it was only available for a snapshot of about 10 days in a draft window that is four months long. Recent examples, my favorite was from actually today. Again, not throwing shade on Roto World and NBC Sports Edge, whatever they're called now, because those guys are awesome and they do great work every single year. But the, the one today that stuck out to me was like Patriots considering trading Damian Harris. And it was like, okay, well, what I want to look at what the quote actually was. And it was like the running backs coach was like, I don't know, man, it, the, the season's a long season. We know we understand his contract situation. 
if a team approached us, we might consider it. And it's like, okay, that's way different than, hey, the team is currently considering trading uh, Damian Harris. So that was the one that stuck out to me. Yeah, Again, and then you can look the 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 blurb further, like dove into it. It was like, because, uh, so I guess it is NBC Sports Edge. It's like, I still call it Division 2, yeah. Division 1 football. <laughs> I'll never change from Roto World. But um, the other like newbies are like trying to find what Roto World is. Um, but yeah, it's it's the, that blurb went on further because uh, NBC Sports Edge is geared really toward season long players. All mm-hmm. DFS players use it, best ball players use it, but it's geared toward season long. And so then it goes on to talk about, you know, hey, if, if Damian Harris gets traded, Ramondre Stevenson's ADP is going to skyrocket, which it plants this seed in the best ball player's head. It's yeah. like, oh, well, I better get out in front of yeah, this exactly. and start getting Ramondre <laughs> Stevenson early when when really, yeah, exactly. Or, or the, the Miles Sanders one, you know, it was like, he had some reps with the twos and, and what, like the report didn't feel like a big deal. And then, you know, the media kind of made a big deal about it that day. And then the next day Sirianni cleared it up and was like, look, we, we're just trying to get our running backs reps. Miles Sanders is our lead back. Miles Sanders was kind of snippy with the media about like, man, I'm so ready to prove you guys wrong and prove that I'm an elite back and all, all this stuff. It's like, well, it was, it was, you know, the six games or whatever it was that Miles Sanders was healthy last year. If we get that version of Miles Sanders, the the Eagles are going to give him the ball. You know, like he was pretty yeah. awesome for six games in this run heavy offense while he was healthy. And so again, I don't I don't love Miles Sanders. I wasn't taking him in the seventies, but I read this report. It didn't stand out to me. And then the blurb comes out the next day. And, and, and even like whatever service underdog uses where they occasionally have blurbs under a player, you click on his name and the blurb right there says Miles Sanders running with the twos, right? Like anybody who's not paying attention, but goes to draft Miles Sanders, they click on the button to add him to their queue. And that's the first thing they see. And they're like, well, I'm not drafting this guy. Right. And so, yeah, those opportunities for everybody else to overreact just because, too much is being read into or the blurb reads a certain way. And all of a sudden a player is dropping a couple rounds. So for me, David Montgomery and Miles Sanders were a couple examples of that recently where it was like, well, this is value opening up because of a, a report that I read before the blurb came out and it didn't impact me the same way that the blurb is impacting the ADP at this point, right? And maybe things play out that way, but we're not going to get everything right. And once we understand that, then we understand, well, what are what are the things we can do to maximize our EV? And that is how we end up get, making the most money off of this over time is, is just consistently maximizing our expected value by taking advantage of these little things. Yeah. I think I'm going to, I'm going to tie the the loop on that one. The typical like thought process associated with these camp reports and is particularly with respect to fallers in ADP is this idea of like, Oh, I don't want to be the one catching a falling knife, right? Like, it's like, I don't want to be the guy caught with my pants down who I'm going to get stabbed because I'm trying to catch a falling knife. I'm just going to let him go and fall. Uh, and I'm not going to be the one who takes him. Well, if you shift that to a more like, uh, optimistic approach. And again, when we place a player on a roster, we're saying, I expect him to beat his, I don't even want to use beat his ADP because I hate, I hate framing things like that, but I I expect this guy to one, maintain his health the entire season, play a full season, and then extremely outperform where he is being drafted. Well, if you think about it like that, let's like, okay, a guy falling in the middle rounds, a guy falling 
a round and a half or two full rounds, like that is when I want to get my exposure. Uh, I like that you brought up um, a couple of the examples that you did. I know that you've covered those um, in the Best Ball Plus product. Again, if you haven't checked that thing out, it is a dollar. Head on over to oneweekseason.com, sign up for Best Ball Plus, get access to all this great content for only a dollar. But those were two examples that I have been utilizing as well in my drafting. So I'm like, I like that you brought those up. Yeah, I have a question. Have you had any of those drafts where a guy falls so far that you like do a quick Google search to make sure you haven't missed any news? Yeah. Uh, recently, I felt like that with Daniel Jones. <laughs> it's like, uh, with the, again, this is like kind of tying into everything that we've talked about right now, but it's like some of the Daniel Jones that I've gotten and I, I won't go into why I'm taking Daniel Jones, but like some of the late or some of the past ADP Daniel Jones that I've gotten recently uh, has been absurd, like three, four rounds uh, worth of value on Daniel Jones. And it's like, yeah. I, <laughs> every once in a while I'll have a guy who's like, you know, ADP of 140 and it's like pick 180. Yeah. And everybody had their strategy for that draft and they've just like they've got their cue set and this guy's just sitting there. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Before I take him, I better make sure I didn't miss some news. Like I, I'm paying attention to everything out here. I don't think I missed anything, but let me double check because like why is this guy falling so far in this draft? Yeah, I've had like four or five drafts where it's like before I draft this guy, let me double check. Um and then if there's no news, it's like I don't even care who the player is at that yeah. point. Right. Like there's so many players who I don't have high hopes for at their ADP, but they fall three, four rounds. It's like, well, sure. I'll, I'll take the chance on that guy. Somebody's going to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that idea of disproportionate upside is, is highly tied to this constraint that we have in drafting best balls in a snake draft, which is ADP. So uh, I love that, man. Um, that I think is going to do it for us. JM, this was an absolute blast. Do you have any, oh, by the ways that you want to put out in the, in the best ball sphere uh, that you've been dying to, to get out? I don't think so. No. Um, I, I'll say this. I think, I think uh, Russell Wilson has his best season this year, but you already know that I feel that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got to get 25% Russ on those uh, rosters. Unfortunately, that meant like, 16, 17% Tim Patrick as well, but yeah. yeah, but no, yeah, it was fun. We had to wait till we had to wait till the kids went to bed on both ends. We recorded this at night. We got a good, uh, a good night pod under our belt. So yeah, it was a blast. It was fun to, fun to be on. Like I said to you before we started, it was, uh, it's nice to not be the host of a pod. I just kind of go with the flow and let you run the show. Yeah, man. Well, thank you for joining us. I know the, uh, the subs have been dying to hear us jam about best ball. Uh, so this podcast, same as all of them, they are going to release Friday morning between 7 and 9 a.m. Eastern. And we are uh, going to see you guys in the draft lobby again. I am Hilo Jam. Thank you for joining me. You know us. You know where to find us. We will see you in those lobbies. See ya. See ya.